0: Well, hello
1: there and welcome to the show. By the way, a special shout out to those of you who may be uh, joining us for the first time. I have it on good authority that uh, some of my listeners are starting to spread rumors saying, hey, I think you might like what this guy has to say. So if you're one of those people tuning in for the first time, first of all, welcome. And if you're wondering, what do we mean by revel in wrong think? I I want you to understand it's not just about being a contrarian. It's not just, you know, when someone says something, we say the opposite. This is about owning your worldview in the face of a, a world, a society, a culture that wants to force you to maintain what, uh, what is referred to as acceptable opinion. Economist Tom Woods calls it the 3x5 index card of approved opinion, where we're supposed to remain on these opinions and anything expressed off of this 3x5 index card is somehow considered illegitimate which is comfortable for a lot of people because then we all pretty much think the same things, but it's a really poor way to understand the world around you. And and even even worse, it prevents you from recognizing ways that you and I have influence in which we can make the world a better place, even in small ways. So that's what this is about. It's about thinking clearly, independently, looking at the world from a slightly different perspective, but most importantly, doing it with the idea that you and I can make a difference. In fact, we were born to make a difference in our own unique way. It's not a one-size-fits-all proposition. And so if that speaks to you, I say pull up a chair, welcome aboard. I'm so happy to have you as part of my audience. By the way, this program is made possible through sponsors like Landmark Risk Management and Insurance and also Altabank Mortgage. I am so grateful to them for helping to to make it possible for me to focus on bringing you the best quality content that I can. And boy, have I got some great stuff lined up for you in this hour. For instance, we're going to talk about what can we expect from the American news media during a Biden presidency. Now, I know what you're thinking because they they were so gentle and kind with Trump. I'm sure they're just going to continue the same way. No, actually, uh, we're going to turn to some helpful advice from a former professional propagandist, and I think you'll find what he has to say very insightful. We'll also talk about uh, how fear has been the dominant emotion for a lot of us for most of this year. Annie Holmquist is the editor for intellectualtakeout.org, and she shares her experience with having COVID-19 and how it changed her perspective. It's a really powerful read, and frankly, if if fear is something that you've become a little tired of, I think you're going to like what she has to say. Uh, Of course, it will also touch on the fact that Congress bravely passed a $2.3 trillion spending bill and even threw a few crumbs to the American people. Brad Palumbo from the Foundation for Economic Education breaks down the COVID stimulus package and explains where some of the problems are with this massive amount of spending and and, uh, where Congress may be going astray. I'm also going to spend a little bit of time uh, touching on a a proposed bill in my home state of Utah that would allow any law-abiding adult over 21 to carry a concealed firearm. Believe it or not, this has been tried before and failed. But this time around, it has a good chance of success. I'm optimistic, if for no other reason than my friends at Libertas Institute, a free market public policy think tank, uh, they are backing this bill. And they're a principled bunch. So, if they're backing it, it's probably a pretty decent bill. We'll talk about that. And finally, when it comes to uh, describing the opposing worldviews that are locked in the death struggle all around us, I try to stay away from labels as much as possible Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, you know, left, right, red, blue. There's a whole lot of bumper sticker slogans that get shouted back and forth in that arena. I think it's much more accurate to frame the conflict as being between the individual. And The Collective got a very uh, interesting piece from Jeff Thomas on whether collectivism is inevitable or whether liberty, as an in individual liberty, will ultimately win out. Let's start, though, with America under Biden and what to expect from an old, or actually thoughts from an old-handed propaganda. What can we expect from the press? I mean, they've just come off a four-and-a-half-year hissy fit. This is, uh, I hope I'm saying this person's name right, Serja. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a Slavic name, and I'm, I'm not good at, at translating this, but um, this individual says, look, I know the propaganda game as well as anyone who lived and worked through the tail end of the Cold War. He says, I worked for the amply funded propaganda arms of two of the most propaganda-minded governments in the world, first as a broadcaster and newsroom sub-editor with the BBC World Service in Bush House, London, and then more briefly with Voice of America in Washington, this was during the late 80s. Now, he says these news outlets are government-funded entities with the brief to prevent, to present rather, their country's foreign and domestic policies in the best possible light. In this respect, they're just like Sputnik News, which the U.S. mainstream media routinely calls a Russian propaganda outfit. But just like Sputnik, they employ seasoned media professionals, or at least the BBC does anyway, and they produce mostly decent programs. Just like Sputnik, their audiences rightly perceive these outlets as information conduits of their respective governments. Unlike Sputnik, however, the Western outlets pretend to be something other than propaganda outfits. And he says, the affectation is pathetic. Behind the layers of waffle, the core claim is clear. We are good. They are bad. We educate they corrupt. We stand for all things bright and beautiful, whether it be democracy, LGBTQ+, open borders, multicultural harmony. While they are the declining, drunk, reactionary Russian barbarians irrationally and obstinately opposed to our values. We tell the truth. They lie. He says, in reality, everyone lies by not allowing mere facts to stand in the way of their constructed or desired reality. And he says, the Brits are pretty good at the game. Their quasi-reality constructs sometimes ring true to the naive, and their polished accents certainly help. The Russians are far less ideologically fanatical these days and therefore don't need to lie much. This is because we've witnessed a curious role reversal over the past three decades. The Bolshevik state emerged a century ago as a revolutionary project determined to shatter the old order. Following the USSR's disintegration, however, Russia has striven to protect her core national interests, Traditionally understood, no quasi-reality needed. The West, however, has morphed into the greenhouse of weird post-human projects and overtly aggressive geopolitical designs. By the way, the voice of America is the also-ran here. For decades, it has been as absurd in its core claims as it's been inept in their execution. Its global impact is as great as the Soviet propaganda machines was in comrade Leonid Brezhnev's final years. Suffice it to say that people who don't quite make it into the real organs of America's postmodern agitprop, are lucky to end up at 330 Independence Avenue Southwest as GS 10s and 11s roughing it out on the way to a hoped-for $90,000 pension. The last and most important point is that Sputnik, as well as Russia Today with its 300 million audience, have given me a platform to say what I think when asked and continue to do so. That can no longer happen ever In the Kremlin on the Potomac or New York, or in their stalinoid media clones across the nation. Wow. That's a that's a backhand. (laughs) If I ever saw one. He says, I share these propaganda insights as background to an interview which I gave to Sputnik News on Sunday, December 20th, regarding whether Joe Biden would be able to quote turn the page, unite the nation, and heal America's wounds when so many people deny his legitimacy and then he gives an English translation of the interview here. According to the foreign affairs editor of Chronicles magazine, historian Serge Trikovich, there are some fundamental differences between Trump and Biden. First of all, the mainstream media machine will be wholeheartedly behind Biden's team. All along, they have acted as, as as an integral, symbiotic whole. The same media machine has denied Trump's That same media machine has denied Trump's legitimacy every step of the way while covering up scandals concerning Hillary Clinton's servers and emails and the shady business dealings of Biden's son, Hunter. That machine has treated all claims of irregularity in the presidential election as baseless fibs, and it has acted as an inseparable arm of the Biden campaign. Had it been otherwise... Had there been accusations by Democrats that the GOP was manipulating the election process, there is no doubt that the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and others would be extremely diligent in not leaving a single stone unturned, Trikovich says. In addition, our interlocutor says, Donald Trump, unlike Biden, did not have the deep state on his side. Now, I have to pause there only because I'm coming up on a break. It's fascinating to hear from somebody who's actually worked within the ministry of truth. And so I'm, I'll, I'll share the rest of this interview with you in just a few moments. Please stay with us. If you want to check out the show notes, by the way, you will find a link to this article on intellectualtakeout.org. Go to the thebrianhydeshow.com. Look for the show notes for Wednesday, December 23rd. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We are talking
1: about uh, thoughts on what the American media will be like under, under Biden. With a Biden presidency, how will the media treat his presidency with deference, with hostility. I don't know. It's to me, it's pretty obvious. You know, I've been in I've been in the media for wow, 36 years as of a couple of days ago. <laughs> yeah, past an interesting work anniversary. But um, I I have become a little bit jaded in the sense that I've seen. How how slanted much of the media coverage is? I actually I interviewed for a job a couple of years ago, and and one of the questions they said was, "You see, you appear to have a beef with the Heritage Media," and at the time I thought, "Oh, I don't know if I have a beef, but you know what? I do. It's it's clear. I really do," and it's it's not so much that they're outright liars as uh, they distort or they omit for the purpose of distortion, and that troubles me. Because it, it it presumes that you and I are little children who cannot handle truths that haven't been spoon fed to us by blow dried and very very slick spinmeisters. I beg to differ. So this is part of an interview with uh, Serja Trikovich, the foreign affairs editor of Chronicles Magazine. This is an interview conducted with uh, Sputnik News last Sunday, and one of the things that uh, that. Uh, Trikovich points out here is that uh, unlike Biden, Donald Trump did not have the deep state on his side through this last election cycle. He says, quote, the American deep state, which includes the military-industrial-congressional complex, but is not limited to it, sees the return of liberal interventionists to power as an opportunity to continue where they feared Trump had stopped. They want to reassert the strategy of global hegemony, which will produce wars like the ones Bill Clinton engineered in the Balkans, George W. Bush in Iraq and Afghanistan, to which we need to add Obama's interventions in Syria and Libya and the escalation in Afghanistan. Trump did not like any of that, which was totally unacceptable to the establishment. Trifkovich says... The third and by no means least important aspect is that Trump has assailed one of the unassailable holy cows of the liberal establishment, the cult of open borders and the project of immigration reform, which would legalize illegal immigrants. There is no doubt that Biden will persevere with this agenda, especially since the Democratic Party sees this course, sees in this course the way to cement its advantage. It knows that naturalized immigrants in America have voted overwhelmingly for Democrats in recent decades. They are immigrants who rely on the federal government to help them along, not the old-school immigrants from the 19th and early 20th century who relied on their ten fingers, their muscles, and their brains to secure a better life for themselves and their families without relying on any mechanisms of public assistance and state social programs, Trifkovich says. Bearing all that in mind, it is certain that millions of Trumpists will remain justifiably convinced that there have been many deliberate, systematic, premeditated manipulations of the electoral process. Those manipulations also have a constitutional component because various executive rather than legislative institutions in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Georgia have changed the rules of the game at the last moment. There have been many other blatant violations of the law. Trifkovich says all of that will, be re- will remain ignored by the mainstream media machine. He says, I see no way for the righteous anger of these people to be articulated in a systematic, coherent manner which would disrupt the Biden administration in executing its various designs. All that remains, as some hope for the Republicans, is that they will prevail in Georgia in the Senate races, which would prevent Biden from having a free hand to apply his team's agenda unhindered on all fronts. Here's the kicker. It's not a matter of uh, you need someone to point you to a source that you can trust. You know, what's, what's the media source you can trust the most? I'll tell you who the source is that you can trust the most, and that is you and your brain. It's about becoming propaganda-proof. And if that sounds like, well, that's, that's hard, that's, that's asking too much, I don't think it is. It's simply a matter of making sure that you have the ability to weigh and question and, and, and search out answers that aren't going to be provided from one media outlet or another. Now, the cool thing about this is it doesn't mean you have to turn your back and shun this media outlet or that media outlet. It just means you become better at recognizing truth from any source. I mean, how many people do you know who will, you could, you could present them with, you know, a, a, a paper that clearly says the sun is shining in the sky when it's, you know, shining at, at high noon. But if it comes from a source they don't agree with, well, you can't believe anything they say on that website. You know, they won't believe what's actually going on. Truth can come from any source, but it's up to you and me to be the kind of people who can discern truth from error. And that starts with uh, learning how to uh, order your thoughts, learning how to read things that are above your head right now. It takes effort. There's no shortcut there's no high road that you can take that will get you there. It's just slow and steady progress of studying things out and learning how to think like an expert or where to go for advice that is above your head and how to find people who aren't trying to peddle a particular agenda. I know it sounds tough, but I'm telling you it works. And it's something I try to put into practice every single day. Shifting gears. Let's talk about the fear over COVID-19. I like just everything that I've read that Annie Holmquist writes for Intellectual Takeout I think has, uh, has really great insight. She's a very well-rounded person. And so when I read that she was stricken with COVID last month, I was like, ooh, I want to hear her take on this. She says, you probably expect me now to explain how awful it was, how I laid around in bed suffering in agony and was nearly carted off to the hospital. But she says that would be a lie. The real story... I had some congestion, did lots of sneezing, and was quite fatigued. I pressed through it, although, she says, continuing to work from home, and would have simply thought I had an unusual but mild cold cold rather, had I not been alerted to potential exposure and then tested positive. Now, she says, standing on the other side of COVID, I'm thankful to have had it for several reasons. And she says, as I've mentioned these reasons to others, I've seen them suddenly encouraged, for they are, for they are not often heard in our fear-mongering news cycle. This is why I wanted to share her commentary. Because among the beefs that I have with the Heritage Media is that uh, they more and more resemble a fear delivery system than a factual platform of which we can get to information to better understand our world. It's, it's infuriating, at least at, at a couple of different levels. Annie Holmquist says, Listening to the media, one would think that a positive COVID test is at the very least a guaranteed ticket to the hospital. But such is not the case, for as WebMD reports, 80% of COVID cases are mild and unlikely to end in a trip to the ER. Hospital stays also appear to be much shorter than they were in the early months of the virus. While the virus was long-lasting, she says, it wasn't even the worst cold I've ever had. I find that others who've had the virus underwent similar experiences, namely the virus wasn't fun, but it wasn't bad as what one might expect. Unfortunately, such anecdotes are not sensational enough to be covered by the media. And the good news, she says, I may be naturally vaccinated for up to six months with the antibodies from the virus. Now, she says, the second reason I'm glad I got COVID is I learned a few interesting things about treatment options. When first diagnosed, a nurse called me up, confirmed I had the virus, then basically told me just sit tight and fight it out. She says a doctor friend of hers gave her a different story, though. Having left the overbearing medical system to set up his own private office several years ago so he could be free to actually practice medicine... This doctor was free to try other treatment routes. She says he treated a relative of hers who's in one of the higher risk categories with a steroid and several other treatments. Noting that the earlier a patient is treated for COVID symptoms, the better chance the patient has of recovering before the virus escalates to a severe level. And by the way, those treatments worked well for her relative and apparently have worked well for other patients of this doctor. Last she heard, he had yet to lose or hospitalize a COVID patient. And she says, this revelation has me asking whether we could have saved many lives through simple treatments prescribed early on. Rather than sitting around twiddling our thumbs, waiting for the vaccine, which has now arrived on the scene, but may take a while to distribute. And finally, she says, having COVID enabled her to ditch the fear of the unknown. As mentioned earlier, everyone seems to think a COVID diagnosis is the kiss of death. Landing them in the hospital or on growing lists of COVID fatalities. But that's just not true. We'll come back to her commentary, just the other side of these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show.
1: I'm sharing with you a commentary from Annie Holmquist, who is the editor of IntellectualTakeout.org. And apparently she had COVID a few weeks ago and survived and is sharing some of her insights one of the things she points out is the fear of the unknown was taken away once she had it, because it really wasn't that big of a deal. Yes, it can be severe, but she says, look, the fatality rate really isn't all that bad for a large portion of the population. At least 99.95% of people under 70 survive the infection. And that figures just 95% for those 70 and older. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. And she actually posts a chart from the CDC, which shows how that shakes out. And then she asks, why are we so afraid of this virus if the chances of survival are so high? And I think that's a fair question. And I would follow it up with, Why is why is there such a, a, a deliberate effort to make us fearful? Whether it's on the part of the media which is reporting on it or on the part of politicians and bureaucrats who, I don't know what they're doing, trying to justify their existence or otherwise trying to stampede us into whatever corral they've prepared for us. Annie Holmquist says, fear is infecting more Americans than the virus. For months, we've sat in our homes, shied away from others, and listened carefully to the diktats of experts who tell us exactly what to do to prevent the virus's spread. But she says the trouble is they don't have any clearer view of reality than we do. And often they seem to deliberately overlook statistics like the ones that she shows in her article. She says, in all likelihood, they too are giving into fears of what the virus could do to them, not only in terms of their personal health, but in terms of their political careers. And she says, I'm not denying the virus can be dangerous. It is. She says, I happen to know two older adults who sadly passed away from COVID, just as I was forming the idea for this article. So I'm not oblivious or callous to the ravages of the disease. She says, what I am denying, however, is the need to live in a fearful bunker mentality. Such a mode of living is not healthy for anyone, especially not Americans, who are supposed to be living in a free, self-governing society. Thomas Paine described our time well when he wrote in The Rights of Man, Freedom had been hunted round the globe, reason was considered as rebellion, and the slavery of fear had made men afraid to think. She says, pain's prescription for fear, however, is truth, but such is the irresistible nature of truth that all it asks and all it wants is the liberty of appearing. And she says, that's why I present you with some tidbits of truth that I learned from my stint with COVID, hoping that, that like me, you too will take heart and press forward into the next year with more hope and less fear. And I applaud Annie Holmquist for sharing that experience, and I, I agree It doesn't mean you're not taking things serious. It doesn't mean that you're a a science denier, that you're you're some kind of a a miscreant who's just, you know, caring about your financial bottom line. It just requires some perspective. And that's something that is not encouraged or um, appreciated by much of our news media and certainly not the politicians who seem determined to get us under their control. All right, going to shift gears again, and let's talk about the uh, new stimulus package. Hey, hey, 600 bucks. And my understanding is Trump is, I don't know if he's just negotiating, but Trump shot it down and said, I'm not going to sign that bill. $2.3 trillion in spending. $900 million of that is, uh, is presumably going to go to COVID relief. And you know there's a lot of emails circulating and there's circulating right now and there's a lot of different uh, sources that are saying look at all this look at all this pork in there. I have not read the bill so I can't I can't say that I've verified this for myself but it's 5500 plus pages. I mean it's it's a massive bill. You don't even carry that in in a folder. You have to wheel it along on a dolly through the halls of the of the nation's capital and it's you know it's it's you know probably I don't know 60 80 pounds of paper. That's a huge package. And the worst part of all is most of that money is going for some very interesting causes, if, if the reports are correct. Brad Palumbo for the Foundation for Economic Education breaks down some of the more glaring problems with the new COVID stimulus package. He says after months of backroom negotiations and lobbying, leaders in Congress have finally reached an agreement on a second COVID-19 relief bill. Now, the nine hundred billion dollars that we're talking about here is part of a larger spending package, but this is specifically for COVID relief. He says, "Here's a brief overview of what's in the behemoth package and a breakdown of many of the glaring problems." And I trust that Brad's a fact checker, so I think you can pretty well hang your hat on these key provisions: six hundred dollar quote stimulus checks for American adults who earned less than seventy-five thousand in 2019 with additional $600 per household for each child. A federal $300 a week add-on to existing state-level unemployment benefits and a renewal of provisions that expanded unemployment to new groups such as gig economy workers. $325 billion in grants and loans for businesses largely funneled through Paycheck Protection Program established in the first stimulus effort. Other provisions an extension of the federal government's legally dubious and sweeping eviction moratorium, $82 billion in funding for schools, mostly for public schools and universities, $69 billion to states for vaccine distribution and COVID-19 contact tracing. Now, this package notably does not include a large general bailout for state and local governments, a Democratic priority, or a COVID-19 liability shield for businesses, a GOP priority. And he has a graphic here from the Wall Street Journal, which neatly visualizes where most of this nearly trillion dollars in additional taxpayer money is ostensibly going to go. It's pretty interesting to see it with your own with your own eyes. Brad Palumbo says what I've outlined above gives you a good idea of what's in the package. But he says, to be clear, this is nowhere near an exhaustive list of what's in the bill. The final legislation is likely to be hundreds, if not thousands of pages long. And he says, this brings us to the first glaring problem with this new relief effort. As Representative Justin Amash has publicly lamented, it wasn't properly debated or amended by Congress. It was negotiated in backroom meetings by the leadership from both party establishments. Why does this matter? Well, he says, remember that Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi tried to slip $350 million for the 50 richest zip codes in America into an earlier version of a second stimulus bill, mostly for rich liberal cities. We cannot trust politicians to dole out nearly a trillion dollars in the dark. Unfortunately, many members of Congress will vote on the package without actually having read it in its entirety. He has a tweet here from uh, from Justin Amash. Congress agreed, according to the New York Times. The, the headline from the New York Times says, Breaking news, Congress agreed on a stimulus deal that would give $600 checks to Americans and provide funds for small businesses and vaccine distribution. Amash says, Congress agreed. We haven't even seen the text. And then there's a, there's another text here from Brad Palumbo quoting Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Congress is expected to vote on the second largest bill in U.S. history today, $2.5 trillion. And she says, as of about 1 p.m., members don't even have the legislative text of it yet. To which Brad Palumbo says, so rare I say this, but AOC is totally, completely, 100% right. Suffice it to say, This is not a responsible or transparent way to spend nearly a trillion taxpayer dollars. Of course, that's nothing new. And here's the worst part. Fraud and waste haven't been meaningfully addressed because that first COVID-19 stimulus bill, the $2 trillion CARES Act, was corrupted by waste, fraud, and abuse. Do you realize the federal government sent more than a million stimulus checks to dead people and many more to random European citizens? The expanded unemployment system it created lost more to fraud alone than the entire system paid out in 2019. And the Paycheck Protection Program was swamped with potential fraud, as tens of thousands of ineligible companies received money and thousands more were overpaid. Brad Palumbo says none of these problems have been meaningfully addressed by Congress, so this latest stimulus effort just pours hundreds of billions of taxpayer money into fraud-rife programs without addressing the problem. And he says the third but but hardly final glaring problem with this additional stimulus effort is the highly dubious effectiveness of its key initiatives. Those $600 stimulus checks aren't targeted or effective. And the way that key relief efforts are structured, he says it's very unlikely they will be very effective. Consider those stimulus checks. Congress is sending $600 to each American adult who earns less than $75,000. However, according to the Wall Street Journal, legislators are using 2019 data to determine income eligibility. That means they're using pre-pandemic income measures to determine who's eligible and who is not. So millions of people who lost their jobs or livelihood due to COVID-19 lockdowns will not receive checks because they did well in 2019. Meanwhile, many billions of people who haven't had their incomes disrupted and can comfortably work from home will receive taxpayer-funded relief checks. Yeah, that's right. The aid is not targeted at all to go to those who actually need it. But these checks are expected to stimulate the economy by boosting spending. He says the Keynesian notion that consumer spending drives the economy is false. We'll actually come back to this. He's got a great example of this We'll uh, pick it up just the other side of the break. Again, you can check out the article for yourself by checking out my show notes on the Brian Hyde show.com
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article here from Brad Palumbo from
1: the Foundation for Economic Education. The many glaring problems with the new COVID stimulus package. And I don't mean to rain on your parade. I don't know. Maybe you were excited. Hey, $600 check is coming with my name on it. I like to get checks with my name on them, too. But, uh, but there's so many problems here. There, there is so much that's wrong with this package. And and one of the biggest problems is the idea that uh, this this aid is not going to be targeted for those who actually have lost something this year, their livelihoods, their business, their ability to earn a living. It's just expected, well, we'll boost the economy by throwing money out there and encouraging people to go spend it. By the way, it's been fun to see that n- not a few people have actually priced out the cost of uh, a good uh, bucket of tar, along with uh, the cost of a good supply of uh, bulk feathers. So, uh, hey, maybe it's going to be put to good use after all. One of the things Brad points out here is the Keynesian notion that consumer spending drives the economy is false. To use a famous example, he says, this thinking suggests that if a child breaks a store window, that stimulates the economy because money must be spent to hire a repairman, who then in turn will go spend that money elsewhere. Now, this is a fallacy because the money to pay the repairman would instead have been used to purchase something else that actually added value for the shop owner, whose window has to be fixed. In reality, it's investment, not spending, that plays the most central role in economic growth. And that investment comes out of savings, because banks loan out deposited money to investors. By definition, arbitrarily increasing spending reduces savings and reduces the pool of money available for investment. Regardless, he says it is COVID-19, government lockdowns, and other restrictions that put the stranglehold on the economy. Putting another $600 in some people's pockets isn't going to change this underlying reality. Government checks are only valuable to the extent that there's enough actual stuff, meaning goods and services, available for those dollars to buy. That's according to Dan Sanchez and John Miltimore, both from the Foundation for Economic Education. They say the more you lock down production, the more our stock of stuff will shrink, and the more our living standards will worsen. No amount of zeros added to those government checks can change that. So it's really unclear what good the checks will accomplish either, either as a matter of stimulus or relief, other than spending billions of taxpayer dollars and worsening the skyrocketing national debt. And of course, unemployment expansion could also have consequences. Brad Palumbo says this doesn't actually target money to those in need, at least in large part. However, it does so by explicitly tying that money to unemployment. Disincentivizing employment. The original $600 federal supplement meant 70% of the unemployed could earn more staying on welfare than by returning to work. The reduction of the federal benefit to a $300 additional supplement on top of existing state-level payouts mitigates but does not eliminate this harm. A sizable, if yet undetermined number of people will still be able to receive benefits that fully or almost fully equal their previous earnings. Okay, true story here. I work a side gig. I work about one day every other week at, at a convenience store. And, you know, it's, it started out as uh, this is just a way to make ends meet and, and, and I've kept my toe in the door just because I work with some really, really great people and it's good to get out of the house. And sometimes, you know, when I'm doing work, actual work, not just ringing people up, but actual hard work, that's when I do some of my best thinking. Something that I have noticed, though, and it, it's, it's fascinating to me, is they are absolutely dying for applicants, and the reason people aren't applying for these jobs, and they pay fairly well. I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're not working for $2.13 an hour plus tips. But people won't apply. And it's because they can sit there and, and just stay latched onto that government teat and keep getting these, uh, these unemployment benefits. And to them, it makes more sense. Now, I've had a few occasions in my life where I found myself unexpectedly unemployed. And I think one of the greatest blessings was that I always was able to be working. And I'm talking the very next day, I was working. Sometimes I was swinging a hammer. Sometimes I was digging post holes. Sometimes I was shoveling snow. But the bottom line is I got out there and got busy. And I think it was probably for my own psyche more than anything else, the thought of, well, I'm just going to have to sit back and apply for unemployment and let the checks come in while I look for the next great opportunity. Oh, I was looking for the next great opportunity, but I wasn't going to sit there. And, and, and this is just for me. I'm not saying that if you don't take that approach that you're wrong somehow. But I have to be busy at some level. The idea of just sitting back waiting for the checks to roll in, uh, no. There's something about that that just doesn't feel right. And I think the biggest concern that I have in in seeing that for a lot of people, though it actually makes more sense than going out there looking for a job, is think about the dependence that this creates. Look, I'm not suggesting that government isn't your friend, your benefactor, your your protector. (laughs) But uh, do you really want to be dependent on it for your sustenance? because it seems like nothing comes from government without some strings attached. Nothing. I'd take uncertain freedom. I would take that risk of uh, having to hustle and maybe do something that that some would consider beneath them manual labor. I would never do something like that. I'm not that proud. I'm willing to do what it takes. And it concerns me to see that... uh, a lot of people seem to have thrown their hands in the air because those government checks are easier to collect. The article goes on to talk about the Paycheck Protection Program, says it's costly and ineffective. And, and by the way, here's the bottom line. This is the, this is the reason why all this spending cannot be a good thing. Because it means future tax increases and in costs for Americans, if not for you and me, then for our kids or their kids or their children's children. Because government cannot create wealth out of thin air. Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises once explained, the truth is that government cannot give if it does not take from somebody. It's not in the power of government to make everyone more prosperous. So, Brad Palumbo warns, what we have to keep in mind is whatever benefits do come from this stimulus effort are going to mean either higher taxes or skyrocketing debt that future generations will have to pay off. So there are a lot of problems plaguing this massively expensive effort that uh, should temper the optimism that, well, Congress finally got something done. He says, this is just another reminder, this big stimulus bill is that when we rely on big government solutions, incompetence, inefficiency, and waste always, always, always are baked into the cake. And again, I'll have a link to this article in the show notes at the BrianHydeshow.com. One final note here, um, just pointing out, uh, my home state of Utah will be considering in the upcoming legislative seven session, rather HB 60 carry conceal or conceal carry without a permit. This was something that was actually passed by the Utah legislature back in 2013. It would have allowed people 21 and over to conceal carry an unloaded firearm, meaning one that uh, did not have a round in the chamber without needing a permit. Now, back at the time, I opposed that and said, that's that's wrong. And the reason it's wrong is because it would invite more, not less, state scrutiny. Are you in compliance? I need to check your gun. You know, whereas uh, otherwise, you know, you could carry openly or you could carry, you know, concealed. Um, Ideally, it shouldn't be anybody's business. If your behavior is peaceful, nobody should be concerned at all. There have been three different bills introduced since 2013, but these bills never obtained a vote because Governor Gary Herbert, for whatever reason, said, I will veto them. But now... HB 60, sponsored by Representative Walt Brooks, exempts lawful firearms owners 21 and up from having to obtain a permit in order to conceal carry their firearm in public. Ideally, that age should be reduced to 18, that of a legal adult. But this bill, according to Libertas Institute, is an important protection of the right to keep and bear arms, and the government's permission should not be needed to exercise a fundamental right. I happen to agree. So I hope, to see this, uh, I hope to see this come into pass. Look, what's in your pocket is your private property. What's on your hip is your private property. And as long as your behavior is peaceful, it ain't nobody's business. That's the way it ought to be. Thanks again for joining me here on The Brian Hyde Show. Again, I will encourage you, if, if this is your first time around, please subscribe to the podcast. Consider becoming a, a, a subscriber. Consider becoming a donor. You can do so through Patreon. You can do it through my my podcast platform on Anchor as well. Uh, Five bucks a month. Every dime that I receive from my listeners goes towards keeping me focused on getting you the best quality content. I do work a side gig again one day every other week, but I like to focus my efforts on bringing the best possible information I can to my audience. And I appreciate, appreciate great sponsors like Altabank Mortgage, and also Landmark Risk Management and Insurance for helping to make that possible. If you uh, have any desire to do business with them, you can find their links at the bottom of my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Contact them. Tell them thanks for sponsoring the program. And if you need what they have to offer or you know somebody who does, point them in the right direction. Go do business with them.